Hello, and welcome to the Occupied Thoughts podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and it's my pleasure to host this edition of Occupied Thoughts. The topic today is Israeli settlements, with our focus zooming in on the West Bank settlement of Pezagot, a settlement located deep inside the West Bank that, according to news reports, will enjoy a history-making visit tomorrow from the U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. For this discussion, I'm happy to be joined by two people who are longtime friends and colleagues, Fadi Koran and Dror Etkes. Uh, let me take a moment first to introduce them briefly, and then we'll get to it. So Fadi Koran is campaign's director at Avaz and a popular struggle community organizer. He previously served as UN advocacy officer with Al-Haq's Legal Research and Advocacy Unit. Apart from his work in advocacy and international law, Fadi is also an entrepreneur in the alternative energy field, where he has founded two companies bringing wind and solar energy to Palestine and other countries in the region. He holds degrees in physics and international relations from Stanford University. Dror Etkes is the founder of the organization Karim Navot, which conducts comprehensive land use research on the ongoing dispossession of Palestinians from their land in the West Bank. Dror has been closely following Israeli settlement and land management policy in the West Bank since 2002. And he and I worked closely together for many years and I learned almost everything I know about settlements from him. So thanks so much for joining us today, Fadi and Dror. Uh, let's get right into it. We're going to talk about Pezagot, about this latest development, which is the visit to Pezagot, and what the implications of that visit are. So I first wanted to sort of set the scene, and we're going to start here with Fadi. Fadi, you were born and raised in the West Bank, and then you came to the, to the U.S. for college, and then returned to the West Bank, where you live today. We have you here because your family actually has a direct relationship to the settlement of Pezagot. Can you talk about your background and, and that relationship a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's good to be with you, uh, Laura, and also Dror. And I, I want to take you back kind of because the relationship with Sagot and with this specific area actually goes back to my grandmother and my great-grandfather. Um, my grandmother used to tell stories about how, particularly she was born in 1928, but in the, you know, in the 1930s, 40s, and up to the 50s, she would go with her father to the Psagot um, Hill, to the area called Jabal al-Tawil. And they had orchards there. They also were grapevines and fig trees and almonds. And they would go picnic there. They would go, you know, in the, during the seasons, pick the fruits from, from those trees. And the same thing also with uh, my parents who until 1979 and actually until after 1967, slowly the Israeli military began to restrict people's movement there. There were barracks put and so forth. But the story really kind of when the settlement was established and what I remember, I was born in 1988. I remember throughout my childhood growing up, actually when we would go to play soccer in the nearby soccer field, we would be shot at by the settlers and particularly during the second intifada, the settlers would come down into our neighborhood because we live very close and would oftentimes attack the houses, attack the cars. My mother was almost killed. Um, and this is the, the one story I would add so people maybe have context here is apart from this land being taken, stolen from us, my grandmother's kind of one of her wishes was to be able to pick figs and grapes from the trees that were there. The one story to emphasize here is this mountain was also like a picnic area. It was like what, you know, maybe Central Park is to New Yorkers. People from all over town would love climbing up to that mountain 
and just sitting there because you can sometimes see the Mediterranean, the Dead Sea, Jerusalem, and just kind of having a beautiful time. And they, they stopped being able to do that. Thanks, thanks, Fadi. So Dror, picking up on, on that sort of, you know, personal background, can you talk to us about Pezagot, how it was established, who lives there? Um, I, I sometimes joke when I talk to Americans, they talk about Pezagot. I'm like, you know, this is really almost downtown Albire. I mean, this is just, just almost part of the Bire Ramallah area. Um, can, you, can you describe the settlements, its, its creation, its, its inhabitants? So it's uh, funny, first of all, good evening or good morning, I don't know. Um, thanks for having me here. And as Fadi said, uh, the place called the, traditionally the Arab name of this, uh, of this area is uh, Jabal Tawil. Jabal Tawil in Arabic means the high mountain or <clears throat> the elevated area. And it's indeed above, uh, above uh, Elbira and Ramallah, just you know, a, few, a few hundred meters uh, east from the last uh, most eastern uh, houses of the town of uh, Elbira maybe 200, 300 meters away from Area A, where Area A, which is under the Palestinian Authority, supposed to be under Palestinian Authority sovereignty since 1995, ends. The the location is, of course, not not accidental. The fact that Israel established a settlement right there on this mountain was very well thought and very well, uh, I would say, um, following or is following an Israeli tradition of establishing settlements on elevated spots in the West Bank uh, above Palestinian uh, localities. And it, I think um, it's an attempt to, to send, to convey a message to the, Palestinian, uh, to the Palestinian population. You know, we are here and you are not going to expand anymore, any farther. So Jabal Tawil in a sense, you know, historically is a resort area of the Palestinian population of Elbira and Ramallah area. Uh, people used to go there, and actually, in the uh, in the late '60s, the Jerusalemite municipality purchased this area in order to build their resort area. They started to 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 fix the land and to prepare the infrastructure for this uh, some some type of I guess hotel or something or hostel. And then the occupation came in 1967, and Israel took over. Uh, in 1979, Israel had a, had issued an a seizure order, a seizure order, uh, supposedly for security, for security uh, objective. Uh, this was the way Israel established settlements throughout the 70s, all the way till the well-known Elon More case uh, in 1979. And uh, still in 1979, the Israeli authorities are, are issuing this uh, seizure order uh, and uh, two years later, 1981, the settlement is being uh, established on the on the peak of the mountain. Yeah, uh, same area which was used to be, which was purchased by the Jerusalem Ida municipality before 67, <clears throat> and the same area where the British also, by the way, had built a, a water reservoir, which was part of the uh, water system which was channeling water from Anosimia, which is farther east from Ramallah, farther, a few kilometers farther east to Ramallah. That was actually the first modern water line uh, which was built uh, to the Ramallah area. Uh, and this is, what, this is the area where the, where the settlement was, uh, was established. From the beginning, uh, the settlement is uh, established 
uh, four specific type of settlers. These are the uh, religious, uh, I would say, relatively speaking, ideologically uh, zealots, motivated settlers who are going to live in the settlements in order to fulfill some type of a national slash uh, religious, you know, uh, ideology. And um, today uh, in, in Sagot, in the center of Sagot, there are around 1,800, 1,900 uh, settlers. All of them are religious. All of them are affiliated with the, I would say, hardcore, hardcore uh, settlers, uh, settlers, uh, how would you call it, settlers uh, block in the West Bank. And, and that part is, I mean, that's important. One of the things that I think a lot of people don't understand when they talk about the settlements is that, you know, a settlement like Pezagot, which is located really in the middle of the West Bank, um, people move there for ideological reasons. So the idea here isn't that this is an area that everybody knows Israel will keep. It's in the national consensus. The, dis the, the distinction between Israel proper and the West Bank is invisible. It's very visible, right? You can't get there without going, you know, really deep into the West Bank. Um, I, I want to just ha just drill down a tiny bit more and then we'll go back to Fadi, but first of all, the, the switch from a, from land seized for security purposes, right? H how did that become a civilian settlement that now is expanding with a winery down the street from it? <laughs> how, how does that happen? Okay, so first of all, uh, we have to see the things in the context, okay? About 45 Israeli settlements were established in the late 60s and throughout the 80s, and actually till the beginning of the 80s, uh, throughout the 70s, until the beginning of the 80s, uh, some were established on land which was, uh, on lands which were seized for so-called security, security. How come? Uh, the, every time that, uh, that Palestinian landowners went to court and petitioned against the seizure of the land, which was supposed to be, by the way, temporary, because security needs are always temporary, right? Security situation changes all the time. So seizure is always temporary by definition. So, but and, 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 been, and, and, and security, seizing it for security reasons is technically legal under international law, using it It's legal under international law for certain, for certain object, objective and under certain conditions, of course. What Israel have done was uh, actually to establish also to seize land for, uh, for the sake of establishment of uh, Israeli settlement, as I said, about 45 Israeli settlement had been established uh, uh, on land which were seized. And until today, um, these settlements are situated fully or partly on, on areas which were uh, seized uh, for so-called security, security reasons. Sagot is only one example. We know another uh, well-known settlement, which is in the Ramallah vicinity, which is Bet'el, which is entirely situated on land which was uh, seized or later just grabbed without any any military official military uh, order. But the point is that when Palestinian uh, landowners went to to uh, Israeli, obviously Supreme Court, and petitioned against the seizure, so the state had claimed once and again that establishing settlement uh, serves Israel Israel's uh, uh, security interests in the West Bank. And until 1979, until, until the Elon case, this is how all Israeli settlements, just about all Israeli settlements, with one exception, Malé Domim, were established. Yes. So, the, the, is, so, 
Yeah, I'll say this is what you, you and I talked about this for years as I've, I've learned more about this. I mean, this is kind of the, the rule by law approach. So the first instance, you take it for a reason you can defend, and then you just sort of change the rules and you change the classification. And really, it, you're, one is able to do whatever one wants. So you have this land that's been seized for all different reasons. Fadi, talking about land seizures from a Palestinian perspective, my understanding is your family actually has documentation showing ownership of, of the land uh, in the Pesagot area. Um, tell me about what that is for a Palestinian trying, and Pesagot is just an example, if a Palestinian wants to try to defend their claim to land, defend their title, or get settlers off their land, give us the, the Palestinian story um, looking at Pesagot as an example. I mean, that's, that's a great question. And I want to say there are actually about 400 families from Albira that own land and whose actual land deeds are available. Um, and you can see which pieces of land they own in different parts, parts of the settlement. Now, what it feels like, and this is all- I see, Fadi, can you just also clarify for people listening, when you say deeds, who issued these deeds? What is, what is the, uh, the history of, or the origin of these documents? Well, there, they're a mix actually. Some of them, the older ones um, that we've unearthed are kind of Ottoman deeds. So they were issued by the Ottoman um, empire going back uh, before basically the British mandate. And then some of them, um, the majority of them actually in terms of tabu, which, which is another term for the deeds, but were established and given and have kind of the Jordanian. The Jordanians, when they came in, did the whole re renewal of a lot of the land deeds. There are a lot of families in Albira particularly went and renewed. And so these are just documents that basically say, you know, land parcel X, and this piece of that parcel is owned by this family. And then it's signed, it's official. So, and it's, you know, even the, the Israeli courts theoretically um, recognize these types of deeds as kind of deeds of private ownership. But what that actually means for a Palestinian is, well, I think the best way to describe it to listeners is we're living under a military dictatorship and the Israeli occupation. And, you know, it's a military occupation, but the way it functions is no law for Palestinians, no law that we write, no rule, no attempt to define our legislation means anything if the military administration, basically the Israeli commander that controls the West Bank, part of the Israeli uh, forces makes a decision by decree, they can say um, that overrides any type of rule. So we're governed by that. And without going into details um, for, for kind of the viewers here, it essentially means that there's nothing we can do, including the fact that there are some families in Albira that are Americans, that actually have American citizenship, that have been living in the US for decades. Even as Americans, there, there's no legal recourse they can do to go and visit um, or even to go and get back the land that belongs to them. The, the, apart from this winery, for example, one thing I find interesting is there are actually Airbnb homes also in Sagot on land that belongs to these families, many of which live in the US. And because they're Palis Palestinian, they cannot actually, they won't be allowed to go into the settlement and to, to even stay in a home that's being rented on their place. And it's, it's truly, apart from the kind of emotional aspect of it being heartbreaking, I think here, the, the example is if one looks at indigenous communities, if one looks at communities that were deeply connected to the land, for Palestinian, it's not just a property, it's not a property, right? I remember my grandmother would speak when she was watching certain trees being pulled out of the ground 
that she had planted with her father. She spoke to that as feeling that her heart was being pulled out of her body because the land is part of the identity. It's part of who you are. It's part of your honor. And the fact that we, I grew up, for example, seeing this mountain and my with my parents, with my grandmother, and seeing them take the water from us, seeing them use, you know, for the, the settlement would be lush and we would be getting water maybe once every two weeks or once every week where we live. And that type of every day, apart from your land being taken from you, and that being traumatic, it's like everyday trauma. And legally, I mean, Dror can speak to this even better. What can we do? Well, international law gives certain rights. International law restricts uh, certain things. But Israel does not care. And there's no real accountability. There's no real actor today that's holding Israel accountable to actually stop violating these rights. And with this current administration, they're not, not, it's not just that they're not holding Israel accountable or deterring it from committing similar war crimes. It's worth their kind of aiding and abetting at an even larger scale, these types of basic violations that not only make peace impossible, but are actually in many places outside Albira destroying lives um, and destroying livelihoods. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a really good point. It, one thing that's always striking to me when I hear um, people talking about the West Bank and defending settlements. It, I think this is part of sort of the the sort of comprehensive dehumanization of Palestinians. You know, there's a sense that people all over the world, the, the land is part of their soul, it's part of who they are, except Palestinians, right, who can be pushed off land and they can, you know, why don't you move to one of the other Arabic speaking places like, you know, dig up your dig up your ancestors who were buried in your grave or as you don't really belong here. Um, but Fadi, you've actually given us a, a good segue, which is, you know, the this Pesagot is a settlement. What, what Mr. Pompeo is going to visit is the Pesagot winery, which is also a settlement. It's, it's an extension um, of the Pesagot settlement. It's a, a, a winery um, where they're obviously making and selling wine, which is located some distance away, essentially expanding the settlement's hold on the land at a distance. Drawer, you can talk about how, how close or how far it is. It's relatively close. Um, but I also, Drawer, if you could talk a little bit about the winery aspect of it, because the winery part of this has been in the news a lot. Um, and maybe people who are just thinking about Pesagot for the first time because they're hearing about Secretary Pompeo don't know this. But as background, Pesagot has become essentially the test case for settlement backers who are trying to compel the international community to treat uh, products made in West Bank settlements as exactly the same and indistinguishable from uh, products made in Israel for the purposes of labeling, for export, all that. And this case with Pesagot has actually gone to the, the highest court in Europe, in the EU, which ruled that no, you have to label it properly. You have to label things that are not made in Israel. You can't say they're made in Israel, which has been, uh, that determination was uh, rejected and condemned by the Trump administration. And the sort of pro-settlement forces around the world have, have called it anti-Semitic and anti-Israel. And this is now being fought out, continues to be fought out in Canadian courts. So the, the Pompeo visit speaks to that, to an effort, I think, by the U.S., what, what Fadi is saying, to, to sort of put a finger on the scales of how the international community sees, sees the winery and sees its products. So, Dror, can you talk a little bit about the winery itself? And then more than that, I'm going to ask you two questions at once. Can you talk about how this winery 
fits into the what I think of as the non-traditional settlement efforts, right? Whether it's the industrial zones or agricultural products or tourism products, projects, or last time I was in the West Bank with you, the horse ranches, which I know you're watching. Talk about the other kinds of settlement and how, how these efforts are being used to launder and normalize um, settlements into something else in the eyes of the world. Okay, so originally the settlement of Sagot was established as a non-agricultural uh, farming community. It's a suburbia, uh, you know, people who live there are living in <clears throat> private, private uh, houses, but uh, there are no farms there, no farms have been established. Uh, what happened there is that in, uh, in some point, a uh, Jew whose name is Mayor Berg, who moved from, her, from uh, the Soviet Union back then, in 1979 to, to Israel, moved to, moved to the settlement of Sagot in some point. I guess sometime uh, during the 80s. I cannot say exactly when he moved there, but it was probably during the 80s. And he's the father of the founder of the Sagot winery, Yakov Berg. And actually, Mayor Berg, uh, he is the one who started, who started to grab land around the settlement, outside of the built-up area of the settlement, yeah, uh, and to cultivate it. So in order to explain it, in order to, to, I, need, I need to go back one step uh, backward, with your permission. The seizure order, which was issued in 1979, uh, includes 140 dunams around 140 dunams. And these 140 dunams had been filled up with construction by the, uh, by the 90s, by the 90s. The sun was actually growing, 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 and the 140 dunams were, were gone. And then gradually, during the late 90s, the sun started to spell outside of the so-called seizure order to the land which was not seized and privately owned by Palestine of Albir including Fadi's family, family, okay? And that was a gradual, a gradual growth. And in the beginning, they started as it usually starts with, uh, with roads, with carving the dirt road, and then with some, uh, with some fencings, and then, then later on with some containers, uh, temporary containers, and so on and so on. But the big, the big jump there was the second intifada. The second intifada, which, was, which erupted in the end of 2000, uh, had put Sagot in immediate danger because it's just next to, next to, the, uh, to the Palestinian uh, town of Albira. And of course, it was very, very dangerous for Palestinians to live who lived uh, next to the settlement because it all became one big, one big front. Uh, and uh, in 2003, the Israeli authorities had surrounded the settlement with uh, electric fence. And what used to be the 140 dunams of a settlement have suddenly become 650 dunams, which Palestinians cannot enter because it's all the whole area is closed with an electric fence. Now you don't want to go in and you don't even want to get close to this place if you're a Palestinian. Because that's gonna be your last journey, or might be your last journey. It's a very, very dangerous. You don't want to do it. Okay, now in the settlements, there's always there are always set, uh, soldiers. Of course, the settlers themselves, many of them are carrying weapon as well. So it's really, it's really a hostile area for Palestinians, okay? Now, the fact that the salmon was surrounded by electric fence had given the, uh, the, continued, the continuous ambitious son, Jacob, Jacob Berg, the chance which he was actually looking for, okay? To expand it, 
the enterprise, which his father started a few years before. And gradually from 2003, we see a boom. We see year after year how he takes more and more land, which belongs to Palestinians and was not included in the seizure order of 1979. And he uh, expands his wineries, his, his vineyards around the salmon. And today he, he, um, he um, cultivates around 80 dunams uh, around the salmon. All of them belong to Palestinian, to private Palestinian uh, residents of uh, Elbir. Each one of them, each one of them. Uh, and in 2003, they are establishing the, the company, which is called the Tzagot Winery. Okay. Uh, and where do they do it? They do it right next to the, right on the plot, the original plot, which a father, Mayo, has started to take to grab a decade or so before. This is also the same place where Mr. Berg, Jacob, Jacob Berg, will build his house. Exactly the same spot, next to the winery. And they start to manufacture wine. And gradually they take more and more and more land and they develop their, their business. And then the big important development, evolution, takes place in 2007 when the Felix brothers from Florida, I think, right? Are joining. And they are, they're pouring money into this business. Well, Mr. Berg doesn't come from money. He doesn't have a hell of a lot of money. But the Felix do have, and they they invest uh, over four million shekel in this uh, in this company, yeah, in, in this company, and uh, and this is this is where the, the, the company becomes really becomes really big, and uh, and then the eighty dunams which they cultivate next to their house around the house are not enough, so they start buying uh, they start buying grapes also from other settlers who take over other Palestinian properties in other parts of the West Bank. And this is the place where I have to put the things in a wider context. The Israeli culture in the West Bank, especially along the settlements which are in the hill country, and Psagot, along the line which is between Yatta in the south, or Hebron in the south, and Janine in the north, and Nablus in the north, okay? This, this is where this, the hardcore settlers are residing, okay? Now, just about all these settlements, with few exceptions, had been established as suburbia, not as agriculture farming, Settlements, but in the end of the nineties, and especially since the beginning of the second intifada, huge areas around the settlements are becoming inaccessible for Palestinians. Simply that, simply that. We're, we're talking about we're talking about tens of thousands of dunams altogether around Israeli settlements, which from the year two thousand or two thousand one, the end of two thousand, the eruption of the second intifada had become inaccessible for Palestinians in the last twenty years. And this is, this is what uh, allows or what gives the opportunity to other Israeli settlers as Berg in Sagot to take over huge amount of, uh, of Palestinian arboreal land, agricultural land, which used to be cultivated just a few years before, and to convert them to Israeli agricultural businesses, exactly as Sagot does it in or Berg does it around Sagot, many other Israeli settlers or enough Israeli settlers enough uh, are doing it uh, in, in, in other settlements and Berg starts to buy from them 
uh, uh, grapes. And this is how the business become bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, in 2008, uh, the, the winery, the existing winery back then, which is next to his house, is not big enough. They need to move. They need to move to another spot, and they build a very, very fancy, very expensive building, about five kilometers outside of Sun. Around five kilometers out of Selman, it's on a hilltop, it's an isolated building. You can see it from everywhere. It takes me around two years to build it. But then the winery is moving, is moving to this to the side. And this is when the Psagot winery becomes a firm. This is when you when you see, you know, there's also there's also a building behind it. And what happened a few years later, what happened a few years later is uh, that the Israeli authorities uh, were forced in 2012. To evacuate an outpost, which called Migron, M-I-G-R-O-N, which was established about two kilometers away, farther north, next to the bypass 60. Yeah, uh, two kilometers north from where the winery was established, they were uh, forced to evacuate this outpost because this outpost was also built on private Palestinian property, and the Palestinian landowners petitioned against the outpost. And after six years, eventually, the outpost was, uh, was, uh, was evacuated. And where they were evacuated to? Very, very close to the place where the winery was built a few years before, four years before, three, four years before. And uh, Berg was not happy with it. He wasn't happy with it because he wanted, he wanted to keep his own mansion to himself. Yeah. And part of the business, or part of the deal, so to say, between the settlers uh, of Migron and the government, who paid the entire, the entire new settlement, of course. I mean, the settlers were fully compensated. Every family received a few millions of shekel in order to be, uh, to be resettled in the new settlement. So part of this uh, um, half-official arrangement between the settlers and the government was that Berg will get money, will receive money in order to be moved to another site. And that didn't happen for several years until October 2016, Berg actually went to court and sued the government of Israel for 25 million shekels for not, for not delivering what they actually promised him to do. Yeah. And as a result of this, as a result of this uh, legal suit, uh, eventually the government uh, moved him to the new site. This is the third already site where he is residing right now. This is where Pompeo is going to visit him. Uh, tomorrow, yeah. and this is another uh, another new uh, uh, winery, uh, which was built very very fancy and very very big, much bigger by the way than the one we left. There's no problem with money there, that's clear, uh, and it's located within Israeli so-called industrial zone, the so-called industrial zone of Shah Benjamin or Benjamin's Gate, which is about two kilometers away, farther southeast of where the, the winery used to be. And since now, what about, about four or five months, he is located in the new, in, in the new site, which as I, was, as I mentioned, the third site. But the grapes are still coming from the settlements. This is where he cultivates, this is where the vineyards are. The 80 dunams are still there. Yeah, and of course, he's purchasing also other, other uh, uh, from other settlers in, uh, in, the, in the West Bank. Thanks. The, the 
there's so many different pieces of the settlement story which are embedded in the story you just told. It's uh, the, the remarkable way that no matter, even illegal actions by the settlers not only succeed in taking more land, but are rewarded handsomely each step of the way. And Migron uh, is, is a piece of the story here with the Pezagot winery as well. Um, so we need to wrap this up. I want to end with a question for each of you. I'm going to start um, with, with Fadi. So how do you see this working out? I mean, you're someone I know who is committed to peace and coexistence. You and I have talked a lot about what that means and, you know, what the, the purposes are of, of, of protest and opposition or you know, whether it's boycotts or something else. A, what do you think is necessary for people to do? What do you, do you support doing for opposing, um, whether it's the Pesagot winery, the wines or the U.S. policy? And B, I want and ask you two big questions to answer fairly narrowly, if you can. B, how do you see this ending? Is, is there a future um, in the West Bank for Palestinians, um, you know, for, for Americans who say, well, why can't the Palestinians and the settlers just live side by side in peace? Why can't they just agree to do that and stop fighting? Can you talk about what the future looks like if it's actually going to be a future of peace in your mind? Those, those are really big questions, um, Laura. And I think you know, starting from the thread that kind of drawer opened, which is the story of this winery. Um, but beyond the complexity there, what I would say is it's basic theft, what's happening. It's, you know, the story may be complicated here, but it's literally a, a few individuals with the support of their government doing what colonial entities have done throughout history in many in many parts of the world where they come there's a community there you uproot them you take their land you pillage it and then you turn that into profit um now what we can do how things can change i think i'm going to start from the lowest kind of the first step is pompeo is is at the end of this administration hopefully within 60 years if if President Trump leaves Six, office. 60 days, 60 Sorry. days, not 60 years. Days. Sorry, 60 days. I'm, I'm thinking in the timeline of the Holy Land where, where years feels like days. But yes, in, in about 60 days. And the first thing I would say is that the new administration coming in, there are key people in, in Biden's administration, whether it's, it's Mr. Blinken or others, who understand um, the key injustices that are happening in the region. And it's going to be central for them to just transform policy, to begin by labeling settlement products as a small step, but really to then begin pushing against those policies that President Trump have opened the door for. That, that needs to happen now because this type of deterrence, as, as Dror was speaking, this is a continual theft of land. And the more action taken by the new administration can deter that from happening at scale, including things like joining the ICC, which would open the door for more accountability. And, you know, basically moving forward instead of the steps that Trump took back. That's the small step. But in the larger picture here, what we see is what I believe needs to happen is locally in Palestine, movements are beginning to reorganize themselves. And although the, the current political leadership of the PA has not been effective, I see a new generation of young Palestinian men and women who are going to be building a movement similar to what we saw with the ANC in South Africa, similar to what we saw with the civil rights movement in the US, with the eventual goal of creating a new social contract in the region that's based on freedom, justice, and dignity for all. And I believe as we pursue that, what you know, through 
both civil disobedience, increasing the cost of settlement and, and land theft, global solidarity building up so that nobody buys this wine anymore, so that supermarkets don't hold this wine anymore and other products from the settlements. I do believe that we'll be, I'll be able to go back with my family to the land that has been taken from us. The key last point I would make here, in order for that vision to, to become a reality, people need to move from the kind of defensive position that we have put ourselves into continuously reacting and responding to the policies of the current Israeli government that, that are meant to suppress and are meant to make people feel weak to a more offensive strategy that is meant to create the reality of this vision on the ground. And I think as we move to hopefully kind of a new US administration, it's just going to be key to think about leaving the status quo processes that brought us to where we are today and re-envisioning new processes that can help reinvigorate that future where people can live and coexist based on a just peace, not based on the peace between you know, the, the slave and the slave owner, which is founded on injustice. And it's, it's a powerful point that I think a lot of us are making these days that, you know, whatever happens next, return to status quo ante is not, um, is not a policy that one should be thinking is going to solve anything, right? Um, Gerard, I want to end with you. I'm, I'm going to make an observation and then you're going to tell me something hopefully optimistic. I remember I, I first went out and visited Pezagot in like 1993 or something. Um, and it was already, you know, it was- I was in Guatemala back then. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I was going through Malo then as a diplomat. I, I was in Pezagot there and I, I sat with one of the heads of the, the Binyamin Regional Council who pulled out all these giant maps. This was after Oslo was started. And, and he's showing me and my colleague from the consulate all of these pictures of by, maps of bypass roads and tunnels and whatever. And his argument was basically, we're not worried about Oslo. It's fine. We're going to continue on the road. We'll outlast Oslo. And here we are in 2020, and they have not only outlasted Oslo, we're coming off four years of a US president who did everything he could to erase the peace process. And, you know, Fadi is talking about a new administration, what they're going to do. The, the, the standard since the peace process started is that the process adapts itself to settlements. It doesn't stop settlements. It doesn't prevent settlements. It doesn't require settlements. It adapts to settlements. Looking at Pezagot and Pezagot Winery as an example, I don't see how there can ever be peace on the ground, except for if maybe we end up with a one state solution, which I don't say that's a solution that any of the settlers or most Palestinians would accept, but I don't see how you have a peace process based on what we've been doing for 25 years if a settlement like Pezagot is there. It, it was implanted there to prevent land being given to the Palestinians and prevent a Palestinian state. Talk to me about what you see the future being as you watch Pezagot Winery continue to expand in all of these ways. Um, how do you see this ending? And is there an end that actually is a peaceful one? Well, I'm not, a, I'm not here, you know, to, to carry any, uh, I don't know, hopeful uh, prophecy. I'm, I'm not in the most, in the most uh, optimistic phase of my life right now, I must say, you know. But Troy, this is why I ask you, because lots of people have optimism or try to convey optimism, but don't know the facts on the ground. You know the facts on the ground better than anybody. So your judgment, your analysis is that much more important. Look, I've been, for many years, I thought the, 
if I'm honest, for many years I thought that the Solomon enterprise is doomed and eventually it will, it will collapse into itself. I must say that uh, the last four years, especially the last three, two, three years, had shattered this uh, conception. Um, what you've seen, what I've seen in the last uh, in the last years of Trump, parallel to the Trump administration, is an unprecedented, unprecedented uh, growth. Uh, not in terms of the amount of settlers in the West Bank, but in terms of the amount of land and the infrastructure. What the Israeli government is doing right now, and you can see it in many different places in the West Bank, you know, is basically preparing the infrastructure for the next 20 years. The infrastructure which they built in the, in the mid-90s, parallel to the Oslo agreements, first and second, is just about to finish in terms of the amount of settlers, which are settlers and partly also Palestinians. Palestinian, the Palestinian population grew as well. And what they need to do right now is to prepare the, the foundation, water-wise, electricity, roads, uh, for the next big growth of, uh, of uh, Israeli settlement. But this is what you see right now in Arub, in Bet Umar, in Khalkul. This is what, you see, what we're going to see, unfortunately, uh, soon in Hawara. This is what we've seen in uh, Nabi Elias about uh, two years ago. So we see, I would say, you know, in uh, unprecedented, in, at least in the last 20 years, in terms of the last 20 years, uh, unprecedented growth of, uh, of Israeli present in the West Bank. It has another manifestation, which is the Israeli outpost, the agricultural farming outpost, which are pumping like mushrooms every day. We see, especially in the last weeks, uh, we see again an, an, an increase of, uh, of, uh, of, of Israeli attempts to grab land. Everything is being done with total, total, um, uh, what is the word in English? Um, Impunity. Thank you very much. Impunity of Israeli of Israeli government support and impunity of Israeli of Israeli government. That brings me also back to to, to Sagot. You know, the, the entire enterprise wouldn't wouldn't happen unless first of all the Israeli military would be there and would protect them. This is obviously you know the, the most basic condition. But it's not only the Israeli it's not only the Israeli military. It's also Israeli money, Israeli governmental money, which is poured into this uh, into this. Uh, into this uh, uh, business. Both the father Berg and the son Berg received, received uh, mortgages, they received loans from the state in order to purchase, in order to purchase equipment. The Israeli, the Israeli state had given to people who takes other people land, who violates even Israel's law, Israel's military law, obviously, you know, they gave them money, they encouraged them. It's not only the money which was given, it's the Israeli water authority, which allocates thousands thousands of cubic meters every 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 year to the Berg family. Yeah. Everything is working together in order to support and encourage what's father before uh, um, rightfully defined as colonialism, this type of colonialism. Taking indigenous populations property, land, and delivering it to people who come from outside who are migrating into this area in order to change the demographic uh, the demographic uh, um, uh, uh, nature of this uh, of this area. So, so, I, so I wanna, if I go back to sorry, but I, just to, to we, we need to sort of 
narrow this down so this has gone over time. I'm, I can't, I'm so interested in talking to you guys and I apologize to listeners for going on so long. One thing that I think is important that is separate from what you're talking about, Jor, which is all of these forces that are working to take more land and get a, you know, to, to cement Israel's grasp on the whole West Bank or almost all of it, is the fact that the population of Pezagot is still really small. I mean, it hasn't grown significantly. I just pulled up the population data for Pezagot since it was established and it's, it hasn't changed very much. It's not like people are rushing to move to Pezagot from, you know, it, it has not changed that much over time. There is not such an appeal still, which I don't want to sound, I feel like I have to strike a somewhat, a somewhat optimistic note. I think it's important to say, if you look at the settlement project today in terms of what it has accomplished in forcing and working with allies in the Israeli government to take land, it's, it's extraordinary. The success is absolutely extraordinary, particularly at the past four years. If you look at the success of the settlement movement, particularly in the heartland of the West Bank, in convincing Israelis that they want to live in the heartland of the West Bank, it has been still a relative failure, not just a not success, it's been a relative failure over the past 25 years. And I don't know if that's a reason to hope that, you know, if there's a change in policy the way um, the way Fadi was talking about hoping maybe from a U.S. administration or the international community that there still is some hope for rolling this back since it isn't, you know, a mass, a mass movement in the same way that, that I think the settlers had hoped it would be. Um, I, I don't know. The, so I, ha I have to end this. We've gone on much longer than I intended. This has been so interesting. I really want to thank both Fadi and Dror for this conversation today, which is always relevant. We should uh, remind people the settlement issue did not start under the Trump administration and it didn't start under Netan the Netanyahu administrations. This has been an ongoing project of the of, uh, supported by successive Israeli governments pretty much since 1967. Um, which has enjoyed at best um, rhetorical opposition from the international community and from the US government um, and from Europe, most of that has been without any teeth at all. Um, so we will be continuing to explore these issues in Foundation for Middle East Peace. Unfortunately. Oh, yeah, unfortunately. We'll be continuing to explore these in webinars and podcasts going forward. So please keep an eye out and stay tuned. This will be posted online. So please share it widely. Uh, thank everyone. I want to thank everybody who is listening, who's tuning into this podcast. You can visit our website, www.fmep.org to subscribe to our very many resources and, and find other podcasts and other webinars on this and similar issues. So with that, I'm Laura Friedman. Thank you very much. And I look forward to our next episode. Thanks. Thank you, Laura. Bye -bye. Thanks, guys.